kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Ratatat behind me now, and this is the best of Risk number eight. If you're new to Risk, this is the perfect place to start. Risk is a little bit different than storytelling shows you're likely to encounter on NPR or elsewhere. Nothing is off limits. No story is too horrifying or too hilarious or too emotionally raw. We go anywhere. Fans have said before that we create a safe space for unsafe sorts of stories. We do kind of consider the title of the series, Risk, a sort of trigger warning for everything. And on today's episode, keep that in mind, because there will be violence, there will be sex, there will be death and abusive situations, lots going on in this episode. And if you're new to Risk, you might also be new to me, Kevin Allison, the host and curator of the show. You might want to listen to an episode called Try. That is an episode where I laid out the origin story of Risk. I talk about how I was in this sketch comedy group called The State on MTV. When we broke up, I spent 12 years trying to suppress this part of my personality, trying to hide that part of my personality, thinking Hollywood wouldn't like me if I was quote-unquote too gay or too boisterous or too silly or too whatever. I finally decided to create a show where it's okay to be too much of you. <laughs> it's okay to let the filters off and just speak your truth the way you're feeling it. Ah, see that? I enunciate too much. <laughs> Get used to it. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the extraordinary T.S. Madison, a trans woman who owns her own porn empire, but also just an extraordinary storyteller and entertainer human being altogether. But before that, we're going to start with an extraordinary story that was shared by stand-up comedian Peter Kim. He shared this at our Risk live show that we last did in Chicago. Risk does a lot of touring around. And we were just blown away by the intimacy of this story that Peter shared about his childhood. Here's Peter Kim now with a story we call The Diverginator. Let's give it up for all the performers tonight. Yeah, they've been awesome. Woo. You guys ready to get a little freaky? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I grew up in Flushing, Queens. Queens is a borough in New York City. Uh, some of you might know Flushing, Queens as the home of the New York Mets. They had the 1964 World's Fair there, and also home of comedy legend Fran Drescher. Right? Uh, but most people don't know about Flushing Queens is that it is a giant 
uh, mecca for the South Korean diaspora, especially in the 70s, 80s. Uh, so it was, a, uh, it was a place where a lot of Koreans immigrated to, and they were all... Uh, they were all congregated around the churches. That's where all the communities were built. And that's where my parents uh, immigrated to, and that's where I was born, just to set the scene a little bit. So uh, I grew up in Flushing, Queens. And as you can imagine, like most immigrant families uh, and church, born-again Christian church families, uh, homosexuality was rarely, rarely discussed. Uh, the church said it was evil and you went to hell, one time when I asked my parents, hey, uh, mom and dad, do you know any gay people? And they were like, there are no gay people in Korea. <laughs> they were like, being gay is something despicable that only Japanese people do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I grew up in that kind of open-minded household. <laughs> Uh, like most Korean immigrants, uh, they treasured machismo and masculinity in their boys. And I was just not one of those boys. All the other Korean boys that I knew took taekwondo lessons and, and played basketball. And I played the flute <laughs> and watched Shira, Princess of Power. Yeah. Yes. Right? So much more interesting than He-Man, right? So I knew I was different way from the beginning, but because of my born-again Christianity and the brainwashing, I always tried to suppress it and hide it. My first ever uh, homosexual memory was uh, when I was in fifth grade, I was at my friend Andy's house. He was a Chinese boy. I went over to his house. He opened a door for me. He was wearing uh, just like a tank top and basketball shorts. He was like, come in. And I sat down in his living room. He was like, do you want some something to drink? And I was like, sure. And I sat down and he sat down in front of me and I saw his dick and balls pop out of his basketball shorts. And I remember there was a reverberation throughout my body. And I was like, oh my God, look at this this fleshy Chinese ball sack. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> I'm feeling things. And I did not know what I was feeling at that point. I don't know if I got an erection. I probably didn't. I don't remember my dick getting hard. Um, but I do remember the first time I had a gay erection was um, when I was in eighth grade. The movie Birdcage had come out. <laughs> Yeah, you guys know this, the Robin Williams movie, Rest in Peace. And I had somehow obtained a VHS bootleg copy of The Birdcage. And when my whole family was out, I would sneak and watch this like it was gay porn. And I remember my first raging hard-on when I saw the oiled-up, muscular body of Hank Azaria. I was like, what is going on? And I remember thinking, this is not, this is, I can't do this. This isn't me. This is shameful. This is wrong. I, I would go to church every day. I, I was one of these kids that went to Wednesday night Bible study, Friday night praise night, Sunday night church. And I grew up in the church and I would spit this homophobic drivel that everyone else was spitting to make sure I distanced myself from being caught by anyone. I was living in fear for so long. I had continued this way 
until I went to high school, which was the first time I ever had an emotional connection to a boy. It was Freshman Friday. I went to a high school called the Bronx High School of Science, uh, which was a specialized high school that you had to take like an SAT-like test to get in. So our school ended up being 42% Asian. <laughs> yeah. And 100% of those Asians were virgins till s throughout the entire time. So, it was Freshman Friday, and all the senior virgins, they uh, gathered all the freshman virgins together, and they were like, we're gonna fuck with these kids, and haze the shit out of them. And they were rolling us down this hill called Harris Field. And it was just the thing that happened. And I remember that day, I saw Mark. Mark was a boy, he was shorter than me, he was like five foot three, he wore a cap all the time, and he looked so poor, like even poorer than me. He was wearing some janky-ass Kmart jeans, and his ears stuck out like a chimpanzee. And I was smitten. I was like, oh my God, who is this kid? And he had a hook nose. I was like, what is going on? How do I feel so attracted to this, this boy? We instantly became friends. We were attracted to each other instantly, and we would hang out all the time. And soon we found out that we had very similar backgrounds. And, and Mikey was talking about how his dad would beat the shit out of him with a wiffle ball bat. Um, Korean immigrants are no different. They just took anything around the house and broke it over your back. And it, we both came from these very abusive, uh, broken families. It was a hard time, and we clung to each other like two buoys in a storm. And I think that's what really bonded us together was that we had these similar backgrounds, we hated our families, but we had each other. So, as you can imagine, a school full of 42% Asian guys all virgins, all grabbing their balls and you know, tongue-wanging alpha male type of guys who are not having sex. So all of that testosterone and all that energy and hormones had to go somewhere. And in my school, it went to us wrestling and grappling all the time. It was insane, that's all we did. And I fucking loved it. I loved it. And I remember when Mark and I would wrestle and grapple, I loved the feeling of our bodies locking, our legs locking, and me being able to overpower him and sometimes letting him dominate me, and it felt so good, and it was the closest I was getting to sex ever. So, uh, we were grappling the whole four years we were in high school, and uh, we would hang out with 20 other Asian virgins. And uh, yeah, that was a lot of Asians. And, uh, and it, it was weird, like we were all Christian, we were all from these immigrant families, uh, very homophobic and macho. Uh, so a lot of our like angst came out through like wearing leather jackets and having like long bangs dyed and bleached blonde. It was a disgusting but acceptable look in the 90s. <laughs> so this was my crew. We hung out together all the time. And a lot of what we did was we would drink at our uh, neighborhood uh, elementary school playground. We would drink 40s 
right? And St. Ides wine coolers and get fucking trashed at a playground and then stumble home. And Mark and I would always stumble home back to my house, sneak in through the window. And one night, it was a cold winter night, we snuck in through my window and we got into my bed and we passed out cuddling each other. I was spooning him and it felt so right. Every crevice clicking into each other. I could feel his heartbeat through my back. And it was perfect. It was something that was indescribable. There was no logic to it. There was no labels to it. Nobody had to fucking know what was going on. It was just something we did. And both of us knew how much we loved it. So we would make excuses to go over each other's houses and cuddle all the time. And he introduced me to Peter Cetera. And yeah, and so we would spend balmy summer nights listening to Glory of Love, smoking Marlboro Lights through my barred Flushing Queens apartment window, and it was the best time of our lives. I think what we gave to each other was what we were missing from our families. I was someone safe for him, and uh, for me, he was someone that loved me unconditionally, even though we never spoke about it. So that went on uh, for a long time, and we were best friends. We were inseparable. I remember one time when we were cuddling, he turned his head back to me, and he said, hey, I could feel your balls on my ass. <laughs> and I remember hearing that and being so embarrassed that I jerked back, and I turned around, and he, after a couple of seconds, turned around and then spooned me instead. And I pulled his arm in closer, and we were just locked there. And I remember thinking, like, this is where I want to spend the... I wish time would stop. I wish I could spend the rest of my life in his arms like this forever. So when it came to college, we both ended up going to the State University of New York at Stony Brook, which is a state school in New York and Long Island. Yeah, all right, SUNY New York. Uh, it wasn't the best school, but we were both like, who we didn't care about college. We were just like, let's just go anywhere that they would give us money and uh, they will uh, let us dorm together. So we ended up dorming together. The first week or so we were there, we met a girl named Stephanie. Now Stephanie was uh, from another uh, one of these specialized high schools, but it was in Brooklyn. She was also a broken toy as well. She came from an immigrant church background, and uh, she had a very abusive father as well, which was also the pastor of her mega church. And yeah, so it was a really fucked up situation. There was one time she told me that uh, her dad made her sit on the floor and eat dinner next to the dog while the rest of the family ate at the table and watched. And so this was the kind of like really dark, disgusting shit that like we were drawn to because we were all like, hey, we're all fucked up, let's all cling together. So the three of us clung together and we were like the three musketeers and it was the best time. And we did some like really stupid shit like, uh, we would do uh, play like scavenger hunt on a Friday night because we were fucking losers and we had no f other friends until Mark ended up hanging out with these guys that he had met through his classes and he started smoking weed and hanging out with them uh, and soon he started like pulling away 
And I felt so hurt. I was like, why are you hanging out with these guys? Who are they? Who are you fucking cuddling? And I got <laughs> insanely jealous. And he was like, whoa, calm down. You know, we're in college. I'm just meeting new people. Uh, so I started getting very, very insanely jealous. And to the point where uh, every time he would go out, I would wait for him until he came back and give him the third degree. I was like, where were you? And he was like, this isn't what I signed up for. It got to a point where like, I was so heartbroken because I thought after spending this much time so close to each other in high school that, I don't know, maybe we would go to college and become lovers or something. But it had been four months in the first semester in college and we hadn't cuddled once. And I was like, freaking out. And I remember we would watch straight porn together and he would never jerk off. And I remember one day, we both went to sleep and I heard rustling from his bed and I knew he was pleasuring himself. And all I could think was, I can help you. Please let me help you. <laughs> the next morning, he went to the showers and I went into his hamper and I looked for his underwear. He always wore these white Tommy Hilfiger briefs. And I picked it up and I saw that it was stained with cum. And I sniffed it. I was like, <sighs> and I jerked off to it. And I remember thinking like, what the fuck am I doing? But I had never come so fast and so hard. And I was like, there's something wrong with me. And this perversion started to grow and grow and grow to the point where he would take his underwear off and throw it in the hamper and immediately when he left, I would take it out of the hamper and wear it around. And this was the only way I felt that I could be close to him because he was pulling away from me so much. Now, fast forward to spring break of freshman year. This was 2001, February. Uh, me, Mark, and Stephanie were all hanging out, and Mark pulls me aside, and he goes, hey, by the way, I was talking to Stephanie, and she said she wants to have sex. And I was like, uh, no, you can't. And he goes, why? And I was like, because I'm in love with her. And he goes, oh, okay. Well, maybe you should go out with her then. You guys get along really well. And I was like, yeah, maybe I will. So I ended up asking her out. Now, what I didn't tell you about Stephanie was that when she was in high school, she had a reputation of being loose. Uh, she had a nickname that she gave to herself. <laughs> and it was called the Divergenator. <laughs> because she had divergenated five Asian boys at her school, which was more than, I guess, most Asian girls at their school. So the Divergenator was trying to claim Mark, and I was like, oh, no, 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 you don't. So I went in there and I asked her, I was like, Stephanie, I'm in love with you, let's go out. And she was like, oh, I, oh okay, yeah, sure. So we started hanging out 
all the time and my plan backfired because Mark started to pull away more and Stephanie just wanted to have sex all the time and I was like keep your vagina away from me <laughs> and I would do everything in my power to hinder her from wanting to have sex with me including binge eating Indian food at the cafeteria and playing Disney movies on VHS nonstop, but the Divergenator could not be stopped. One day we were in my dorm room, just me and her. Mark had not come back from spring break. We came back early and we were sitting there on my bed watching The Little Mermaid. Yeah, and she started kissing my cheek and I was like, whoa, what are you doing? She was like, come on, you know, we're, we're boyfriend and girlfriend now, right? And I was like, I guess, and she started kissing my lips, which at age 18 was the first kiss I had ever had. And I was like, okay, and she started kissing me, and then she started putting her hands all over my body, down my belly, and down into my sweatpants, and I was like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And she was like, shh, just relax. And she pulled my sweatpants off and started blowing me. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, this feels amazing. <laughs> but yet so wrong. It felt so incredibly wrong. And it was this weird feeling where like, my body was saying like, yeah, there's a wet mouth on your dick, go with it. And, I'm, and meanwhile, I'm like, where the fuck is Mark? Why isn't he back yet? Who is he cuddling? That's what was going through my mind. And I was like, hey, let's just stop, stop, stop. I pulled her head away from my penis and I was like, hey, why don't we just watch The Little Mermaid? She was like, that's my favorite movie. I've watched it a thousand times. I don't give a fuck. And I was like, um, okay. And she starts blowing me again. And all I could hear in the background is, sha-la-la-la-la-la, oh my, my, the boy is shy, he kinda kissed the girl. And I'm like, what is going on? And then all of a sudden she comes up to my face, whispers into my ear, she goes, hey, I want you to fuck me. And I was like, oh, okay. So she flips me around, gets me on top of her, and I'm trying to fit my penis into her vagina without touching any other part of her body. So literally, I am planking on top of her, trying to do one of these things. And, I'm, and it's my first time anywhere near any hole. So I'm like trying to figure out where it's going and she's trying to guide it. I'm like, stop touching it! <laughs> and, and I finally insert and I remember in my head there was an explosion. I was like, oh my God, this feels amazing. But it felt so incredibly wrong. So I was stumbling in and out, trying not to touch a boob and she finally gets frustrated and she goes all right turn around and she flips me around I'm on my back and she gets on top of me and she starts riding me and all I could mutter from my mouth was oh no oh no oh no 
To which she leans down into my ear and she goes, shh, don't worry. I was born without a uterus, so you could come inside me. And before I could even think of something to retort, I was busting a geyser of virginal cum all up in her barren wasteland. And just a squall of shame had started to fall from my head to my toes. I just laid there and she was still on me and she looks at me and she goes, that was fun. And she jumps off of me, my post-virginal cum still dripping from her vagina and she stamps my chest with it. And I was like, what the fuck was that? And she leans over to me and she goes, you know, they call me the diverginator. That's my finishing move. I thought I was losing my virginity, not a game of Mortal Kombat. All right, calm down. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> she then lays on my side, nuzzles her head on my shoulder, and goes, do you want to go again? And without even blinking, I said, absolutely not. <laughs> and I kicked her out of my dorm room, and I was like, I can't look at you right now. And she left. Everything changed. Mark had come back and I told Mark what had happened and he, all he could say was, how was it, how was it? And I was like, I, I don't think I like it. And he was like, oh, okay, that's weird. Now, two weeks later after that, I had put in an application to transfer to the University of Michigan and I had gotten in. Go blue. <laughs> and I gotten in. So it was easy for me to avoid Stephanie and be like, okay, I'm not gonna go to school in here anymore. Let's just not talk and let's not see each other. And then the year ended out and Mark and I were still at this weird place and it was so painful to live in the same dorm room with the man that I loved, but I couldn't express it in any way because of my homophobia and the shame that it was still built inside of me. So I went home and I asked my mom, hey, remember your friend up in Tammy Mint, which is a resort up in the Catskill Mountains in New York State? And she goes, yeah, yeah what's, what's, why? And I was like, could you get me and Mark a job up there? And she was like, yeah, let's, I'll look into it. And then she got us a job and we were like, yeah, let's get out of the city for the summer. And I was like, this is my perfect scheme and plan. We're gonna be 
up in the mountains. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to spend all summer being ranch hands, and we're going to fall in love, and it's going to be a gay erotic novel for the century. <laughs> so we drive up there, pack all our stuff. We're singing to Britney Spears. He was a big fan of Britney Spears for her body. And uh, we got up to the Catskill Mountains. We get to Tayman. We check in with the guy. And he showed us around. And he showed us to our room. And our room had one queen-size bed. And I like looked up to the heaven. And I was like, thank you, God. <laughs> this is a sign. So that night... He told us, sleep early because you guys have to get up early in the morning and you guys have to help with the guests and stuff. And we're like, don't worry, okay. So we end up going to sleep and it was so hot. It was the hottest day I could ever even imagine. We were dripping sweat, all the windows open. The fan was go on full blast. And I remember we were in bed and I was tossing and turning. And I don't know if it was because of the thousands of cicadas outside or is because all I could think about was just getting on Mark's dick that I just could not sleep. And I was tossing and turning. Midnight turned to 1 a.m., 1 a.m. turned to 3 a.m. And I just got up and I turned over and I see that Mark has the biggest erection ever. Hit the tip of his penis poking through his boxer shorts. And I was like, this is my chance. So I made a move. I grabbed his cock, his throbbing cock. And, I, and before I grabbed it, I was like, this is going to be so hot. I'm going to grab it. He's going to look at me. He's going to be like, suck my fucking dick. <laughs> this is going to be the original Brokeback Mountain. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I grabbed it, and I, and I saw him, and he woke up, but he wasn't sleeping. He wasn't sleeping at all. He opened his eyes, and he was like, what the fuck are you doing? I was like, What? He goes, what the fuck are you doing? I ain't like that. I'm not a fucking faggot. I was like, what? And he got up from the bed and smashed a lamp and started breaking things in the room. And I got so cold. My body got frigid. And I was like, this can't be happening. What is happening? This can't be real. And he was like, what the fuck? You cannot do that. I'm not like this. I'm not like this. And I got on my knees and I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. This is not, I'm sorry. And all I could say was, sorry, please forgive me. And he was like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. And I was like, please, please, Mark, don't leave me here. I, I can't stay here. And he told me, pack your shit. We're going back to New York right now. So we packed all our stuff and put it in his Camry and we drove four hours back to New York City in complete silence, smoking cigarettes after cigarettes. No Britney was playing at all. <laughs> and every time I tried to talk, he would just be like. So I just kept going in and out of sleep, going from crying to sleeping to crying to sleeping. And he finally dropped me off at home. And before I could even say bye and turn around, he sped off. After that, he refused to take my calls. And he never spoke to me again. Now, I went to the University of Michigan after that. And I was in a fucked up state for so long. I had stress dreams about this guy, 
about him, he and I becoming friends again, him forgiving me for 12 years. And it was a nightmare, literally, it was a nightmare. I didn't have sex after that for seven years. Yeah, it was, I was so traumatized and I didn't come out until nine years after that moment. So it was a rough time for me. Now 12 years passed by, I turned 30, we both turned 30, we're the same age. And we're not Facebook friends, but I kept stalking him through my friends' pages. Like, how is he doing, what's he doing? But he had one of these Facebook pages that was blocked. So like, I couldn't see anything. So I messaged him. The day I turned 30, I was like, hey, we're both 30 years old. I'm really sorry about what happened when we were kids. I, I was confused and, 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 and you know, scared and I took advantage of you and that wasn't right. And I just, I wish you could forgive me. And there was no response. Till two weeks later, he finally responded, hey, it's all water under the bridge. I hope you're doing well. And I stopped having stress dreams that day after that. And it took me a while to figure out who I am. I'm still trying to figure out who I really am. And I hope he has figured out who he is. But I will always remember him as the boy that held me close and I felt completely safe in his arms. And you know what? You can't take that away from me. Thank you. Everybody out there doesn't know me. I am the infamous T.S. Madison, and I am I'm everything. Right now, I'm an entertainer. I'm a viral vlogger, and I happen to have some adult entertainment on my resume. Well, it's, it's the first thing to pop up when you Google me, but, you know. But there was a time when I was just plain old Madison trying to survive in Miami, Florida, in the, on the streets of Miami, Florida, and... Being an African-American trans woman, it was very difficult for me to live in Miami and obtain a lot of things I wanted, like as far as um, transitioning and monies for that. So I had to work the street. Working the street, it has its ups and downs. Some nights you get all kind of good dick. Some nights you get bad dingling. And then other nights you get robbed. So it was November 22nd, 2001. I was in the midst of trying to decide whether I was gonna to continue to live in Miami. It was a couple of days before Thanksgiving. That's why I didn't forget it. I had came to the conclusion that I was gonna just solely do my escorting work off of the internet. I was gonna only do arrows and maybe the magazines, the upscale magazines. Now, when you're working out the, the magazines and arrows, you don't get the good dick that you need like you can get from the sidewalk, honey. So I said, Madison, I'm just gonna tiptoe a little bit out here, just tiptoe out here on the sidewalk and you know, have a little fun, make a couple dollars, and then get back to my upscale whoring. Well, a guy picked me up on the corner of Northwest 79th Street and 12th Avenue. I think it's about midnight because you know the freaks come out after 12. 
He had to be about 29 years old. He had a little pudgy stomach. He had a cute face. He had his body was he didn't have a cute body, but he was he had a cute. He was Puerto Rican and black, so he had a nice caramel skin tone, and he had a small cock because I saw it. It was small, but you know I'm the big dick bitch, honey. So of course he wanted a big dick bitch in his mouth. Anyway. So, I mean, he was cute. He had a lot of jewelry. I guess the jewelry was supposed to really excite me. But I'm like, you got on all this jewelry and all you have is 20 bucks? Okay, whatever. And he says, hey, baby, want to blow? And I was like, oh, but of course. <laughs> but that's going to cost you. And he says, okay, you know, how much is it going to cost you? And I said, it was gonna, well, you know, a blowjob back then was... 60 bucks, you know, for him to give me a blow, 60 bucks. And he was like, well, I don't have 60. All I have is 20. And who was going to turn down $20 and a good blowjob at the same time? I know it wasn't me. So I climbed my ass over into the car. I decided to go ahead on and say, okay, I'm going to take the 20 and I'm going to get in the car. I left all my girlfriends like, bye, girl. Bye, I'm going to get some fellatio. See y'all in about 10 minutes, you know. So I got in this car and we turned the corner there was a vacant house with a lot of shrubbery and bush and stuff like that. And I told him, I said, baby, don't park here. I have a bad feeling about this area right here. And being that I'm a Libra, honey, I'm practically psychic. So I was like, I have a bad, bad feeling about this spot right here. He said, it's okay, baby. I have good head. And they started talking about they got good head and... And money, you know, it just, it's, it does something. It just, it just puts a spell over you like, yes, I got to get it all. So I said, okay, well, just back up in. He was like, no, baby, it's okay. I'm going to pull right here. So he pulled there right in front of the shrubbery and all the bushes and stuff like that. Picked me right up from the corner. And he says, okay, baby, lean the seat back. So I leaned the seat back, you know, leaned it back, you know, pushed my boobs up to the top. Pulled one titty out of the bra. So he could suck my nipple. So he sucked my nipple and it got me aroused and I got an erection. And he was like, oh, yes, you know. Oh, my God. So I said, like, baby, give me the money. I know you see the goods. Now give me the money. So he gave me the 20 bucks. And I slid, I had a, I never forget what I had on. I had a red, white, and blue two-piece bathing suit with an afro wig. And I had it pulled back like Pam Greer. And I slid the 20 bucks under the back of the wig. So I'm laid back in the seat and he's just performing. Mm, 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 mm. Like a bobblehead. Mm, mm, mm. So as he's performing and I'm looking here because I am still have this uneasy feeling about these freaking bushes over here. Shrubbery is just shaking. So I tap his head like while he's down there. I said, baby, look up. I think there's something moving <laughs> in the bushes over here. So he was studying like, mm, it's okay. Mm, mm, mm. So it, at this time, my erection is like going down to like nothing. It's going, it's, it's shriveling up to nothing. He's like, baby, what's wrong? I'm like, baby, there's something crawling in these bushes and in this grass. Do you know that this fool looked up, I looked over, and there was a double barrel sawed off shotgun right there in the car. And it was a guy with a ski mask on. And he said, you motherfuckers don't move. So, of course, I'm already frozen. I was already halfway hard. So I couldn't do anything because my panties was down around my ankles. And I'm sitting here with this afro wig. You just had to see the moment. I was just like sitting here looking. 
at the gun, at this fucking dude looking at the gun. My dick is over here dead, dead sleep. And this fool is sitting here like, give me all y'all fucking money. Give me your jewelry. Give me all this stuff. So I'm sitting here like, what? So do you know that this disgusting fool had the audacity to say, I just gave her all the money. I was like, you dumb bitch. I said, baby, listen, I don't have any money. He has on all this jewelry. So, you know, it became a war of who has what in the car. <laughs> so, so the guy opens the door and he said, don't you fucking run. Just give me all this jewelry. Give me all this jewelry and all your money. So he was like, hold on, baby. He said, hold on, man. Don't kill me. Don't kill me, man. Please. Please don't kill me. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. And then all of a sudden, this fool shot off running. So he leaves me in his car, panties around my ankle, shriveled up dick, sitting up here, soft as goddamn cotton. The robber is looking at how fast the man has shot off like speed racer, like pew. And he, both of us are sitting here shocked. So the dude jumps in the car, turns this man's fucking car on, throws it in reverse. I'm still sitting here, legs wide open. Dick still sitting here like, oh my God, is this shit really happening? <laughs> he backs the car up and does a hundred going up the street. Ooh. So I'm like, baby, are you serious? So he puts the gun over here and he says, bitch, you're going to give me all that motherfucking money that that nigga gave you. I said, baby, I told you the man ain't, I don't have any money. He didn't give me any money. He didn't give me shit. Cause fuck that, I wasn't parting with that twenty dollars. I'm sorry, I shit. Now nah, I didn't get you. He licked the dick, and I, I needed my money for him licking it. So we riding up the road, doing hundred miles an hour in a fucking stick shift Toyota Corolla. So this fool is driving the stick with the mask on and the gun. I, it, this shit was it was like out of a fucking a movie. So it was like woo woo woo. So I'm over here and I'm trying to pull my panties up. My my shit still hanging out here, okay? And he's like, don't look at me. This was crazy. We drove past the police car and he said, bitch, don't look at me. And he pulled his mask off. Like he pulled it from this way because we rode next to the police. So he pulled the mask off like this. So when he said, don't look at me, the first thing I did was, I looked dead at his face. It's like. <laughs> drove to some area like he knew where he was going like he's been doing this all night long and he jumps out of the car he comes around on my side and he tells me to get out and I got out of the car and he says pull those fucking panties off pull all of that shit off so I took it all off or whatever and he had me stark naked it was almost dawn and he took me to the bushes and he said you're gonna give me everything you got I said baby I don't have anything he says, all of that ass and them titties, you got everything right there. I was like, oh, okay, so it's turned into this now. He says, get down on your knees right now, and you better suck this dick. So I just dropped down, and I just started sucking it on knees in the bushes. Going crazy. He was like, golly, gun still right here. Gun right here in my head, and I'm eating and he was like, I want to fuck. I want to fuck you. So I was like, oh my God. So what is the pro fucking procedure when you have a gun to your head, okay? <laughs> so he just spit on it and just rammed it. You know, spit and ram and all and nervousness is going to cause a, a milkshake. So he's, 
So he's fucking me like ridiculously, honey, you know, and he's trying to do a reach around at the same time. Now, at this time, when he did the reach around, I was like really disgusted. Like, okay, so now you want me to enjoy this now while your hard dick is in my ass and you only use spit. I'm nervous. There's butterflies and everything else going on my stomach. So when he pulled his dick out, it was covered. It was covered. It looked like a Milky Way or Mounds or... Oh, Mr. Goodbar, son, it was covered. I was like, oh my God, this man's gonna kill me because I shit it all over his dick. <laughs> but I was nervous. I was like, bitch. <laughs> so he looked at it like he looked at all the dookie and everything all over the dick. Like that was a turn on for him. Thank God that he it was a rubber. He did put a condom on it or whatever. Cause, cause so he peeled the condom off. And I was like, okay, yeah, he's gonna kill me because this condom is coated, honey. This is coated with paste. <laughs> so after he busted nut, he pulled the condom off and threw the condom in the bushes. And I'm still standing there. And he tells me, turn around and face the tree. So I was like, okay, is this this is it? Like, it's going to be right here in a, in a bunch of shrubbery in the, in the middle of nowhere, naked. He said, count backwards from 100. So I was like 99, 98, 97, 96, 95, 94. By 90, he threw me the car keys to the car and said, do you know how to drive a stick? I was like, hell no, I don't know how to drive no fucking stick, shift car, no. He told me, don't look. I can't help but look, baby. I, I, I'm looking. He gets in the car. Some, it was a gold Nissan Maxima. The Nissan Maxima pulled up to the exact spot and a woman was driving the Nissan Maxima, a real woman. And he jumped in the Nissan Maxima and left me right there naked with the car, the keys or whatever. So as I'm walking out of the bushes, police cars pull up. And one of the girls that I was standing on the corner with pulled up in the police car. So I got to thinking, how the fuck does she know that I'm way back here in these bushes? Was this a setup? The girl pulled up. The guy that was robbed, he was in the back of the police car. So this stuff, they pulled right up like maybe like five minutes later. I'm standing here, baby. And I'm like, okay, the client is here in the car. But how did this bitch that I was just standing on the corner with, how the hell did she know that? Because this man drove me way up somewhere. How the hell did she know? I just, it was so strange to me. So the police got out of the car and they said, uh, sir, you know, because this is Miami. They respect nothing. Sir, tell us what happened. So I was like, well, first of all, I'm not a sir. They said, excuse me, sir, you're naked. So I was just like, <laughs> you're a sir. I was like, okay, whatever. I'm the motherfucking victim here, okay? I'm the victim, so don't come over here with this bullshit. So I started to tell them what happened. Like, you know, the, the usual prostitute on the street story. I was talking to a friend, and he was getting ready to give me a ride. And the police said, cut the shenanigans out, bitch, because we were already informed on what was going on. We were informed by the guy. So the owner of the Toyota was like, baby, go ahead and tell them what happened, because I've already told them my side of the story. So go ahead and tell them what happened. I said, okay, well, this guy pulled up and he offered me $20 to suck my dick. I told him not to pull over there to this fucking abandoned house. And some fucking crazy ass maniac, trans-loving fool crawled through the bushes 
and pulled a double barrel sawed off shotgun in the car and, and kidnapped me and raped me. That's what happened. And so the guy was like, do you want to go to the rape center? I was like, okay, you know, you just called me sir. So what is it going to look like that you saying, well, you have a black male that was raped by another black male. I was not interested in going to the rape center. It was good dick. The dick was good. I'm not going to lie. Even though I shitted on him, honey, I was nervous. I would have did all that stuff. He didn't have to bring the gun, you know? So as I'm sitting up here telling them the story, you know how the, the police uh, talk on those things on their arm, you know, the little, the, the talking, they got a call in and they called out some numbers. So in the midst of them calling out the numbers, the police just jumped in the car and they had wrapped me up in the thing. It was like, let's go. We've apprehended a suspect. Let me tell you what this stupid fool did. This fool had to have been stalking me walking the streets all night. He parked his car on the other side of the street where the bushes were. He parked his car over there. Do you know that the other girls on the corner had busted out all the windows of his car and flattened his tires? So I guess the Maxima was trying to take him back to get his car, but he couldn't move his car because the girls tore that fucking car down to the ground, baby. And he was standing up there trying to get inside of the car. And the police rolled right up on him. And I was in the back seat. They grabbed him and they said, you're under arrest for kidnapping and rape of a man. And he was like, man, I didn't rape no motherfucking man. I ain't rape no man. I ain't do shit with the fuck is y'all talking about y'all lying on me or whatever, whatever, whatever. The guy called to the other police car and he said, well, if, you, if we bring him back here to the car, are you going to identify him? And I was like, yeah. So the girl that drove over there that worked on the corner with me, she's in the back seat with me. So as soon as she walked up to the window, she was like, that's him. That's him right there. Yes, that's that nigga. That's that nigga right there. Take that bitch to jail. So this fool just broke out and tried to run and then fight the police. And it was crazy. And I'm nervous because I'm like, oh, God. Like, I wanted him to go to jail, but I didn't want him to go to jail because, like, I have to come to work every so often. Like, it might get slow on that. They don't care about queens here in Miami, especially during this time. I could get killed by the same stupid fool, and they'll let him back out on the street. After a few weeks went by, right before Christmas, I had to come downtown, and I had to talk with the investigator of the case. And the guy was like, tell us your story. I told him exactly what happened. And they rolled over and they looked at the computer. I said, well, how long do you guys have him for? They said, oh, he's released. He got out. His bond was $50,000. He's been out of jail for the last week. I said, okay, so do you honestly think that I'm going to sit up here and press charges on this man? And he's going to freaking kill me on the street? What about my protection? Like, are y'all, do y'all, are y'all gonna put me in some kind of protection or something? I'm a queen. A man will kill me for 20 bucks. He'll actually kill me for free. If he was still in custody, yes. But y'all let this, you supposed to not give him no bail. This man kidnapped me. He robbed this dude of his jewelry. Theft by taking of the vehicle. Strong arm robbery. Rape. Are you fucking serious? This man was not supposed to get a bond. Because I was a queen. This shit happened. So, I didn't press charges. Because I was just like, what was the fucking use? Like, he's out. They felt like that my life was petty. Like, 
So my life is worth only $50,000? Like, excuse me, 5,000, 10% of his bond? Are you fucking crazy? So I just was like, no, I'm not pressing charges on it. I said, eventually, he's going to get it. He's going to either get killed by somebody doing that stuff or he's going to get AIDS or something's going to happen to him where he's he's going to get his payback for doing that. I'm just not going to do it. But that was my last night working the street. Right after that, I vowed to myself, I said, Madison, bitch, you have so many things to look forward to in life. This could have been a moment of boom. And all people would have said was she deserved it because she was a whore. And I know this to be true because I walk the streets of Miami and, and I know girls that have been murdered. And the police, was they didn't give a fuck about that stuff. They didn't care about that type of stuff. They didn't care. You know what I'm saying? It was just another statistic. Like, oh, well, girl, they killed another queen. Like, okay, well, she's dead. You know, one less queen to worry about on the sidewalk. During that time, it was very difficult for the girls to transition and work at the same time. I don't think anybody walks that street for nothing less than money. If either one of us had the opportunity to make what we make in a night on a fucking job, do you think we put ourselves at risk? And a lot of us cannot get jobs or are not allowed to even choose a job because the first thing that the people are worried about is which bathroom we're going to use. Because I've worked on many jobs, but every time they didn't want to say the reason that they were terminated my position was because of my sexuality, but it was. It was. They put it on something petty. Oh, we can exercise our right to terminate anyone within the probationary period. We can exercise that right to do that. And it's things like that that I was faced with that, that drove me to the street. Like, it wasn't lack of education. Like, And I hate when people misjudge people that, that, are, that are escorts or exotic dancers or, or anywhere in the sex entertainment industry. I hate when people misjudge them or, or put them in the category of being uh, uneducated. So I got raped and robbed, and I let it go. But my lesson was, Madison, you survived this stuff so that you can tell this story to new girls that are thinking about the business. It's not all what it's cracked up to be. You know, this, these things can happen to you, and you may not be as lucky as me. You might not get away with your life. You, you might be murdered, but you need to know that, that I survived to tell you the story. Like, this happens. And if you're not careful and you rob a boy pussy, you're going to get shitted on because that's what happened to that damn boy. <laughs> Man, you got it all worked out, don't you? Old pair of shoes. Never wear your heart on your sleeve Cause it don't go with the suit And you got a bad, bad woman With a young little pretty face They told you not to go get married But you went and did it anyway Singing Oh, sweet sounds of American youth Never miss a Sunday service Never got tattooed Every time you drive by waving, I see you right through. This is Risk. This is Yellow Wolf behind me now, and we just heard from the amazing T.S. Madison. Now, 
our next two stories are even more intense than our first two stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the hilarious Chris Gethard, who you can see on TV on Fusion on The Chris Gethard Show, although the story he's about to share is not so lighthearted. But before that, we're going to hear this extraordinary story that came to us from Kyle Guest. Kyle has his own extraordinary podcast called The Lapse, and here he is now with a story we call Jeremy. I'd been a fat boy for most of my life. I was occasionally bullied and increasingly shy and trying desperately to pretend that I wasn't. I guess that's why halfway through sixth grade, this other slightly standoffish kind of heavyset kid showed up and Mr. Wheatley said, hey, Kyle, why don't you show Jeremy around? He had this kind of unusual look to him. He was maybe native, part native. It was hard to tell, but it was mostly in the eyes, these dark kind of narrow slits but this otherwise fair complexion. I gave him the grand tour of the school, the library, the gym. Uh, When we passed by the computer lab, our typing teacher was Mrs. McIntosh. And I told him that, I said, I swear to God, that is her actual honest to God name. He thought that was pretty funny. He said, actually, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think the principal told me about her. I, I I hear she's kind of a bitch. I said, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> actually, actually, she she is kind of a bitch. So I wasn't wildly popular in elementary, but I had friends, and I thought that Jeremy could be another one of those friends. But that week, I had my back turned, and Jeremy wrote Jew on the rear of my Nike t-shirt in big pink highlighter. And I said, what the fuck, man? (laughs) That shirt was expensive. Why did you do that? And he just laughed, and he said nothing. He took another swipe and made a vertical line down the front of my shirt, and I, I wasn't Jewish, for the record, but I was getting pretty pissed off. So I said, fine. And I grabbed another highlighter, and I took a swipe across his shirt. And he pushed me, and he shoved me against my desk, and he said, don't write on my fucking shirt. But I was as big as he was, so I shoved him back. And I took a swipe at his shirt, and I said, fine, that you don't write on my fucking shirt, okay? We're even, right? And I put down my highlighter to demonstrate a truce, He took his and swiped it across my face, opening about an inch-long gash along my right cheek. And he said, yeah, now we're even. It was much safer to stay on Jeremy's good side, even if he was being a prick, because as far as he was concerned, I actually was his friend. Maybe I, I I was confused because... I didn't like him, like, not really. It was just this bewildering whiplash back and forth of, he's a nice guy? He's a bad guy. He's a nice guy. He's a bad guy. Like, take the first day I gave Jeremy my lunch money, which is a classic bully staple, right? He didn't beat me up, and I didn't get a swirly, and he didn't flip me over and empty my pockets. He just asked me. He said, Kyle, can I borrow a dollar? And so long as he 
paid me back, I obliged. I said, that was fine. The truth was he did pay me back, almost always. And if he was late, he would actually double it. He'd pay me back twice what I lent him, which is surprisingly generous, right? But after about a month of this, this give and take, this back and forth, Jeremy wanted more money. He was always tough to read because he was very stoic. He didn't have much in the way of expression on his face. So he said, sure, man, no problem, but you got to pay me back first. He weighed those words. He said, why can't I have a dollar now? And I said, will you still owe me a dollar, Jeremy? It wouldn't make any sense if I lent you one now. you got to pay me back. And he sacked me with his fist right in the balls, and I crumpled. And he loomed over me and said, you don't trust me? I'm supposed to be your friend. Now lend me a fucking dollar or you get nothing. I lent him his dollar, and he paid me back. Jeremy kept the hunting knife in his pocket, which he brought to school for utility, he said. But it wasn't the threat of violence that scared me about Jeremy, the kicks and the punches and the jabs. It was just not knowing when they were coming. It was the smiling through gritted teeth and pretending that, yeah, you know, a meter stick across my knuckles was pretty funny. In an effort to start anew and to get away from Jeremy, I picked the least popular school, the one that most of the other kids weren't going to. My friend Sean, my good friend, was going there, but I kept it a secret from everybody else. I shuffled off and put it in this teacher's stack, and when Jeremy asked me, Kyle, which school are you going to, I made something up, and I said something along the lines of, I, I actually don't know. I, <laughs> I chose one at random. I don't even remember. He went off to the stack and went through it, and before I could do or say anything, he checked and saw, there it was, Garibaldi. And he marked off the same on his. On the first day of high school, I met Jeremy in the hallway. He ducked low like he was going to deck me, like he usually does, but he stopped short and put this thin-lipped smirk on his face. And he opened his palm. And he wanted me to shake it. He said, I think we should have a truce between us. As if I was the instigator in any of his shit, but I said, yeah, sure, why not? Let's have a truce. So I shook his hand, and the bell rung, and we went our separate ways. And then I realized what I had just done. I just cemented the friendship with Jeremy that I never wanted to begin with. To his credit, he doesn't hit me as much. Uh, he does get bigger, and he does hit harder, though. Not that I give him the satisfaction. I never react like it hurts. The other kids, they notice this, and when they ask me, doesn't that hurt? I tell them that, no, actually, I have this really high pain tolerance, and I don't actually feel anything. It's, it's senseless. I don't feel a thing. And they test that theory. So they actually start to hit me, too. And even though I'm black and blue and green underneath my shirt, and every time they're hitting my shoulder, it is excruciating, I keep this poker face because I don't want to let this demoralize me, and I will not let them call my bluff. Instead, I start avoiding the hallways at lunchtime. And I don't miss them much, because Jeremy liked to play this game he called, I'm going to take your backpack, and you're going to chase me for an hour, and if you don't, I will hide it and you will never find it again. My buddy Sean and I spend our lunches lifting weights at the gym in the high school. We get stronger, real strong actually, but it doesn't matter because Jeremy decides to follow suit. And before long, it becomes this kind of competition between us of who's getting the stronger. 
I started skipping class, a lot of class, a whole month straight at one point, long enough that everyone actually thought I dropped out of school. So when I came back, the only lie that I could think of that would justify that long a departure was that my grandmother died, which is the worst lie I have ever told, but I was desperate and it was the only thing I could think to say. So I told them my grandmother died. They wouldn't let me make up my assignments and I was going to fail five of my classes and I only had eight of them. So I begged my mom to write me a note. And when I say begged, I mean, I literally begged on my hands and knees to my mother to write me this note that my grandmother died. And I guess because I was an A student and I was used to being able to get straight A's or at least A's and B's, she wrote me that note. The problem was that I had earned an association with Jeremy. We were two peas in a pod as far as my teachers were concerned because we were always together. So despite the fact that I wasn't a student in their eyes, I was a delinquent just as bad as the little shit in class carving swastikas into the desks. So when I handed in the note to my socials teacher, Mr. Silva, he barely glanced at it. He looked at me and he actually accused me to my face. He said, Kyle, did you forge this note? And I said, no, which was the truth. I, I didn't forge the note. It w- was written by my mother. If you'd ever seen my writing, I had potatoes for hands, and my mother had kind of beautiful handwriting. But he promised me that if I did all my assignments, every single one that I'd missed, he might just pass me with a C-. minus. It was the best deal I could have got, so I really buckled down. I had a week to do all of these, and I did every single one of them, one after the other, And I handed them in, and I got my grades back, and they were Bs. Until I looked further down the sheet, and I saw that he had taken off 50% for lateness. And I'm not very good at math, but I'm pretty sure that 100 minus 50 is still a fucking F, which means that I never stood a chance to begin with. So, I fail five out of eight of my classes, and I'd be repeating the ninth grade. On the upside, it was summertime, which meant for me, no Jeremy and a pile of video games. I did my best to avoid him. He knew where I lived and he spent time with some other friends of mine, but I spent most of my time isolating myself. I like to play video games and I like to hang out with some of my friends online, but that was the extent. I didn't make a lot of new friends in high school. About midsummer. I get a call from my friend Sean. He says, Kyle, are you sitting down? I said, yeah, you bet. I'm playing Metal Gear Solid 2 right now. I'm absolutely sitting down. What can I help you with? He said, Jeremy stole my brother's car. He what? Well, what are you talking about? He stole your brother's car. Jeremy came over. We hung out late. He was crashing on my couch downstairs. And when everyone went to sleep, he stole my brother's car. And I said, how do you know it was him? Are you sure? He, He said, Yeah, my brother Colin heard his engine start up. He looked out the window, and there was Jeremy booking it off in his car. The car turned up on the side of the road with a couple valuables missing, but Jeremy was nowhere to be found. The question for me wasn't why Jeremy stole the car, because Jeremy did a lot of things for no fathomable reason. The question for me was what was his out here? 
Was he planning to drive cross-country with it and make a break for it? Was he just planning to go to jail? Was he going to come back to school and say, Hey man, sorry I stole your brother's car? I didn't understand what his plan was. So the new year rolls around, and I don't know if he's dead or he's dropped out or he's been abducted by aliens, but Jeremy is not at school. I'm waiting for this wave of relief to wash over me, but it doesn't come. I just feel sort of empty because... Most of my classes this year are with kids a year behind me. So not only am I the fat kid in school, but I'm the stupid kid in school. So all I want to do is miss more school. The principal warns me that if I miss more than a day a month, he's going to come to my house and personally drag me back to school. But I honestly cannot sleep. I can't function. I'm full of anxiety. So by the second week, I'm already skipping class. I wake up to the sound of my doorbell at 11 a.m. Mom and dad are at work, my sister's at school, and I can't see the front door from my bedroom, but I have a feeling that I'm in trouble. I move slowly because if it is my principal, I don't want him to know that I'm home. The doorbell rings and I peer around the corner just enough to see through the frosted glass. It's Jeremy. He knocks this time, putting his hands against the glass, trying to peer in, and I duck behind the corner. My heart is in my throat because I can't think of a good reason he'd be here. He stole my friend's car. He's been missing for months. And as far as he knows, I should be at school. When I look back, though, he's gone. Until I hear the sound of furniture being dragged in my backyard. And I realize that the door to our deck is open for the cats. And I'm just, I'm frozen and I don't know what to do, and before I can do anything, he's climbed up the balcony, and he's in my kitchen, and we're standing face to face. Like two deer in headlights, neither of us is certain what to do next. There's not a word exchanged. My dog, a golden retriever, gives him a sniff and wags her tail excitedly. And I always thought if I found an intruder in my house... The first thing I would do is go for a weapon or call for help or run, but nothing is registering. It's just Jeremy and his hand in his pocket. I know that he keeps a hunting knife on him, and I know that he's unpredictable, but I don't know if he'll hurt me. So I do the only defense I've ever known to work against Jeremy, and I treat him like my friend. I say, Jeremy, wow, it's been a while. I haven't seen you in forever. Are you going to a different school now? What's up? He says, yeah, I'm going to to MRSS. I said, oh, yeah, with with Ross and Chris and those guys, right? He says, yeah, listen, um, I got to meet somebody. I'm sorry. I got to go. And he takes off through the front door. And I'm panicked. I tell my parents that we need to get a security system because I feel like he's going to come back. They, they try to assuage me and they tell me, Kyle, go to school. He's not going to come back. You already caught him once. He'd have to be an idiot. But I know that Jeremy is not the sharpest knife in his pocket. He does things for no fathomable reason. But it's not open for discussion. I'm to go to school. The next week, I call my mom as I do every time I get home from school. And I'm walking around the living room when I trip over something. I say, hey, mom, the cat's knocked the DVD player off the stand. 
This overwhelming sense of anxiety hits me. I look down the hallway and my bedroom door, which I always keep shut, is sprung wide open and I sprint down the hallway. My mom is asking me what's wrong and I look and everything from my video games to my systems to my movies, my entire collection of electronics is gone. It's gone. I call the police and I give them a description of Jeremy. We do a search of the house and it looks like he broke in through a window, but there's no way that he himself would have fit. So the officer says maybe it wasn't him, but I know that that's not true. I know that Jeremy couldn't fit, but I know that he has accomplices and friends and people a lot smaller than him that certainly could. Sure enough, the officer, a mere day later, drives by Jeremy, toting around my PlayStation 1, a single item he couldn't sell because it had stickers all over the lid. And the officer says, you know, if it's any consolation, Jeremy says that he's sorry. And I would have felt bad for him, maybe, just a little, but the next day he's already out and he's having coffee with his friend across from my mom's store. Because he's only 15, it turns out, he can't be tried in an adult court, which means that between the car and the thousands of dollars in electronics he's been stealing and whatever else he's been doing in his absence, I wonder how invincible he must think he is. I become increasingly paranoid. I'm terrified that he's going to come back to my house a third time. I'm afraid to sleep in my own house because maybe next time I won't wake up in time for him. Maybe he won't be so nice to me. Maybe I won't be able to leave my house because if my sister's home and I'm not, what would happen to her? I'm afraid to be in my house and I'm afraid to be out of it. So I drop out of high school. I can't go anymore. That's it. I'm done. About a month goes by of this. By now, I've disconnected the metal bar from my weight set because there are knocks on my door when nobody's there, because I can hear people whispering in my basement, and because if I sleep too long, I know that he's going to come back. It's five in the morning, and a thump hits my door. I leap out of bed, and I sprint down the hallway turn on all the outside lights. It's the newspaper delivery. Might as well be up for the day, so I read it. Front page says something about, um... Oh. Ross. Ah, he was one of the dorkier kids from my elementary school. I hadn't seen him in a while, but his mom, Colleen, she took the siblings to school every day. Yesterday... She came home to a stranger in the house. Well, uh, she realized not quite a stranger. She knew this person, but this person, he shouldn't have been there. When he realizes he's been caught, this heavy-set kid, he hits her. She tries to fight him off, but while he might only be 15, he's much stronger than she is. He improvises, finds a roll of duct tape, binds her arms, pulls down her pants, and he rapes her. When he's finished, she tells him to take what he wants and go. He says he's sorry, but it's too late for that. He tapes her eyes shut, he tapes her mouth shut, and he slits her throat with the hunting knife he keeps in his pocket. But Colleen, that doesn't kill her. So this kid, 
he searches the garage and he finds this out. He douses her and the rest of the house in gasoline and he sets it ablaze. The suspect can't be named because he's underage, but he was found in the family's car smoking their cigars with his friends and the wedding ring he'd taken from Colleen's finger. I put the newspaper down and my mom asks me why I'm crying. The news goes national across the country because the crime is so violent, they say, the boy is being tried as an adult, which means that his image and his name can both be released. And there, on the front page of the Vancouver province, what I knew all along was true. Jeremy is unpredictable and he is dangerous. The defense argues that Jeremy has fetal alcohol syndrome by nature, which means that he lacks a conscience. A psychiatrist in the case says that he shows no remorse for his actions and calls him untreatable. The judge is at a loss, and the judge says, and I quote, Jeremy is unspeakably evil. He sounds like a half-baked villain, but this was supposed to be my friend. (laughs) My friend. He gets life in prison with a chance of parole after seven years. I should feel safe, but I don't, because the fact is, Jeremy doesn't work alone. While he's locked up, more people come to torment Colleen's family. They cut the tails off their horses, they rattle their chains in the night, and I feel like my family is next on that chopping block. My anxiety is higher than it has ever been because the proceedings have taken years and not a day has gone by where I didn't flinch at every creak, crack, and moan in my house because somebody's on the roof or somebody's in the bathroom or somebody's in the basement. And as every year goes by and every family friend asks, Kyle, what have you been up to? I dread answering that question because the answer is zip, nothing. I dropped out of high school and I haven't done a goddamn thing. I wish I could tell you that I had a revelation where everything turned around and I forgave and I forgot and I felt safe in my own house, but I had a serious case of PTSD. The only cure for that was time. And to this day, I still don't have my high school diploma. But I do have my bachelor's degree. It turns out the secret benefit to a sad story is that universities everywhere accept them. University kind of reshaped me into the person I have always wanted to be, and it gave me a profound love for storytelling. I think it also gave me back the sense of trust that I'd been missing for so long, and I'm infinitely grateful for that. It's been 13 years since I last saw Jeremy, and I don't expect to see him anytime soon. And the more I talk about it, the more I put it out there, the more I wonder maybe I haven't seen the last of Jeremy. Every once in a while, I see a kid with that black mop and those beady little eyes and the expression way too stoic for his age. And I swear it could be him.
Thank you guys so much, and thank you, Kevin, for that very nice intro. And it has been—it's been a couple of years that we've been trying to find a date. It's really nuts. I've always felt bad, but I'm so glad to be here and finally be a part of this. This is nice, and especially this topic. This one's like panic is like very near to my heart. I will not say near and dear to my heart. It is not dear to my heart in any way. It has plagued me um, since I was about 12 or 13. That's when I really started suffering, is the only way to say it, uh, from depression, real depression. And that depression would often express itself in panic attacks. It was a thing that I didn't know what it was, and I didn't, I didn't um, really tell anybody about it for about 10 years, but it's a thing that, that happened. And, and for me, um, I think for everybody they're different, and even for me they're different every time, but some of the things that I know are my face gets very hot, it goes numb like pins and needles, I can't like, even take a breath, and I will usually wind up lying on the ground and crying, and they affect my life for like weeks afterwards. It's just really horrible. And um, that started, yeah, when I was a kid. And uh, you guys don't have to worry. I'm very comfortable talking about it. I see a shrink now. I, I work on it. I work very hard. I've seen a few shrinks over the years. My first guy, very standard, by the book, played by the rules, did everything the correct way, and that didn't work for me. <laughs> at all and now I see a lady who's the opposite. I don't know if she's even aware there are rules, uh, but she doesn't play by them, not by a long shot. She's like a tough talking foul mouth broad who grew up in Jersey. I love her, I get her, I understand her. She like, she once spent a whole session sitting on the couch with me, showing me pictures on an iPad of a house she bought in Mexico. The insurance does not cover this. I paid her cash, $175 to show me pictures of a Mexican house. This is also how she told me that she was moving to Mexico. That's how she informed me. All of our sessions are now via Skype. Um, she's come to see me in shows, and that's like a nice thing, but it's, you have to remember, this is my workplace, this is my job. You wouldn't want your shrink hanging out in your workplace, but it's debatable, because what I do is public performance, so it's on the, on the border. Here's the thing that's not debatable. She once came and saw me in a show, and my parents also attended it, and they lived near each other in New Jersey at the time, and she asked them for a ride home, and they gave it to her. <laughs> that's not okay. If you're not familiar with how like mental health doctoring works, it should never end up with your shrink and your parents alone in a car. <laughs> should not happen. There's no conceivable reality where that's how it ends. Is, is that, it makes no sense. But I love her even though she's crazy and even though she ignores the rules and even though I probably know more about her than she knows about me, <laughs> even though we've been working together for since 2007, I love her. Um, and she does a lot for me and, and like, for example, she once said six words that I think kept me alive. Um, in June of 2012, we'd been seeing each other for five years at that point, and I'd been sober for 10 years at that point, and then I got booked to do a show at a music festival called Bonnaroo. And some people are chuckling, because they've clearly been, and they know that drugs flow freely at Bonnaroo. And it had been 10 years, and I thought I could get away with it. And what happened was I realized that I have an addictive personality, even if I managed to control it for 10 years, it didn't go away. And I learned that when I did $300 worth of MDMA in 36 hours, which is not even how MDMA works. It, I later looked it up, and I realized I was just basically hammering my brain with chemicals that were having no effect. And it fucked my life up. 
it messed my life up for a good summer. The whole summer of 2012 was spent recovering from that. I came home from Bonner. I broke up with a girl who I'd been dating for eight years. I, uh, I had the same roommate for 10 years. I just moved out, no notice. I just left. And I started acting crazy, man. I was like partying all the time in New York, staying up all night, sleeping with tons of girls, which like, I don't get how I pulled it off either. <laughs> I think I, what I learned that summer was like looking like a member of Weezer goes further in New York than I knew. It goes a long way. It goes a long way. And it was really nuts. It was really insane. And I didn't tell my shrink the full extent of it. Like I told her I did some drugs. She asked me if I was okay and I said yes and that was just a lie. It was not true and I hid it and that's not a cool thing for me to do. And in the midst of that summer, while she didn't realize how much I was reeling, she said, you know, I think you might have some like ADD type stuff and maybe that's something that helps lead to your panic attacks. Maybe the fact that you're, you have that anxiety is getting you there. So maybe we treat you for ADD and then we can cut your panic attacks off at the pass instead of dealing with the aftermath of them. And she said, I think we should put you on Adderall. And I was like, yeah, we should do that. We should absolutely do that. Because I didn't know much about Adderall, but I hear you can abuse it. And that was the mood I was in that summer. And Adderall is a type of methamphetamine. It's a, it, I don't know if it's methamphetamine. It's an amphetamine, um, but it's close enough. I became a meth head instantly. I was eating 60 milligrams of Adderall before noon every day and just going nuts. That's crazy. Everybody who just said, wow, is either a medical professional or prescribed or a college student currently. Um, <laughs> because that's a lot of fucking Adderall. And I started getting all these crazy things happening. Like my muscles were twitching and I'd be dehydrated constantly. I was extraordinarily productive, I will say that. Um, any, anything that happened to me in the summer of 2012, physically, any weird thing that happened to me, if I Googled Adderall, comma, the thing that was happening, hundreds of message board posts would come up. Like Adderall, can't get a boner, yup. Like, Adderall can get a boner, boner never goes away, yup. Like, Adderall, get a boner, and the boner's working fine, and then the boner just deflates like a balloon, yup, all the time. Adderall, shitting blood, yup. Adderall can make some people so tense inside that it gives you internal hemorrhoids, and when the internal hemorrhoids tear, you shit a lot of bright red blood. And that was happening to me. Funny side note to this story, this took place in 2012. About three months ago, my wife was like, why is there always blood on our sheets? And I was like, oh, because I shit blood. And she was like, how long has this been going on? And I was like, since 2012. And, and she was like, what? And I was like, yeah, I think it maybe it'll clear up on its own. And she's like, go see a fucking doctor. Go see a doctor. You're ruining our sheets. And I did. I got a surgery from this guy. His name is Dr. Rabin Ramani. He's in South Williamsburg. If you need a guy, he's great. He's awesome. He was super cool. He was super chill. Anyway, this summer was insane. As you can tell, I'm making jokes, but you can all tell I'm making jokes to mask the the seriousness of that summer it was really it was it was just foundationless is how i always describe it it was scary it was really scary and i was doing tons of shows that whole summer because I started performing comedy in New York when I was 19 years old. I grew up on stage. It's where I'm most comfortable. This right now is the most 
confident and social you will ever see me. Even backstage, the other comedians will tell you I've largely sat in a corner fearful of them <laughs> the whole night. I'm, I, but here I feel comfortable. And when you're a performer and you're performing, you're in control. I get to tell you guys my version of the story and it feels good. And every time you, it does. And every time you guys laugh, it means that you understand in some way. And I feel less alone. And in that summer in particular, that meant a lot. When, when, when I say a joke and you guys laugh, I feel like we're connecting and we're coming together as a community. And that's why I think every theater is secretly a church, which is a very pretentious thing to tell you guys right after I talked about shitting blood. <laughs> I know that. I understand that. But I was doing shows all the time. And one Sunday night, I was doing a show um, a few blocks west of here at the Upright Citizens Brigade. And it was the Sunday night show called Ask Cat. It's been running for about 20 years, and I'd done that show for many, many years. I was, like, in charge of booking that show for many years. It was safe territory for me. And that show, it's interesting. Like, a lot of really great improvisers will come and do that show, and some of them are famous people, and they come back and drop in. But it's actually really bad improv. It's great people doing shitty work because people fuck around. They mess with each other, sell each other out. Out, make fun of each other on stage, like pull the rug out from under each other. It's like everybody messes with each other. It's part of the deal with that show. And I'm letting you know that because I had someone said something about me that was a joke. And it was a joke that had been said many times before. And every other time I would just make fun of whoever said it back. And even this person, this was a great friend of mine for 10 years. He said this thing. And I'm telling you that because this is how this show worked. He wasn't malicious. What happened was I was in the middle of an improv scene and I said a line. And the guy on stage with me went, well, at least I can straighten my arms. And what he was referring to was this. That's as straight as my elbow goes. Um, this one goes out at a different angle. And my hands, you can see my hands are weird. I can't really bend them. My knees are messed up. It's part of why my forehead's so big. And it's this thing that my mom had. She passed it on to me. And it turned, with her, it turned into this really nasty um, rheumatoid arthritis. And for me, it's only going to get worse as I get older. And he said it. And for some reason on that night, I mean, that joke had been made 99 times before, and I would just make fun of the person back, whoever said it. And uh, this was the hundredth time, and I just felt my breath go, <laughs> and my face got hot, and the pins and needles started. And uh, right on the other side of the person who said it, very good, one of my oldest friends in the world, a comedian named Shannon O'Neill, she's sitting in a chair, and she looked at me and saw my face, and I realized, like, oh, no, she sees it. She sees it, everybody could see it. And it was a sold out crowd that night, probably close to 200 people. And all I could think was like, 200 people are about to see me have a panic attack on stage. That's never happened before. And I didn't know what to do. Like, because in, in my mind, I'm like, there's 200 people looking, not just, not just looking at me, they're looking at this thing that I think is this really hideous thing about myself. And I can feel it. And I feel so naked and alone. And I didn't know what to do. So I just turned around and I just walked off stage, just in the middle of a scene. I was like, <gasps> and just left. And um, a lot of times I'll tell this story and people are like, oh, who said that to you? And I don't, it, you know, it, it's gossipy and I don't think it's important, so I'll just move on. I'll give you one hint uh, and let you know he played Kenneth the Page on 30 Rock. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I walked off stage and Jack McBrayer followed me and he was upset and understandably so. He was behind me. We were walking backstage towards the green room and he's behind me. He's like, dude, 
you, what are you doing? You walk off stage, you make me look like such an asshole. That's the show. Like, that's what the show is. And he was totally right. That's the social contract of the show. You mess with each other. He's like, we both look like, you, I, you look like a crazy person. I look like an asshole. And he's like kind of yelling at me. And we're in the green room. And my back was still to him. And then I turned around. And as soon as I turned around, I didn't even say a word. He saw me and he went, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know because my eyes were just dead and there were tears and he could just see it that I was just gone. I was just gone. And he just kept, he put his hands up. I'll never forget. And he went, I didn't know. I didn't know. And I just went, it's been a really bad summer, Jack. It's been a really bad summer. And I pushed past him and I left. And I went out the back entrance of UCB and then there was another show. They do two shows a night on Sundays. And I'd been doing that show for years and there's all these people who come every week. And I just ran past all of them crying and you could see some of them were like, oh, I guess Gether's not doing the 9.30, you know, like you could see it. And I didn't know what to do. I was totally panicking, completely panicking. And I got in my car and I started driving and I didn't know where to go. And I just started making random turns. And then next thing I know, I realized I was going through the Lincoln Tunnel because I grew up in New Jersey. I live in Brooklyn now, but I, I grew up in New Jersey. It feels really safe to me. So I just, I, in my freak out, I was like, Jersey, Jersey, I'm in the tunnel. And I didn't know what to do. And I was in my head, I'm like, my internal monologue just gets so out of control during these attacks. And in my head, I'm like, maybe I should drive to my parents' house. I'll drive to my parents' house. I'll be okay there. And then I'm like, no, because if I show up in the middle of the night at my parents' house like this, they're going to put me in a mental hospital. They're going to put, I mean, we had talked during previous incidents about how maybe that would be a good idea and I didn't want that. And then, then it started getting really dark. And to me, one of the scariest things about being mentally ill is when I'm thinking crazy things, but I'm not yet crazy enough that I don't understand that they're not crazy. You know what I mean? Where I can hear myself think something and be like, that's fucked up, but I mean it. So like in my head, I was like, what I should do is I should get a whole bunch of fucking whiskey and I should get a hotel room and I should throw my phone away and I should just fucking chill out and see what happens. And then in my head, I'm like, that's not a good idea. And then in my head, I'm like, that's why I should do it. It was really fucked up and dark. It was really bad. And I'm making all these turns and I'm hearing those things and I'm scaring myself. My own in internal monologue is causing me fear and it's getting more out of control and I'm making random turns and the next thing I know I'm in Weehawken I don't know why I don't know anybody in Weehawken I have no connection to Weehawken but I am in Weehawken and I start walking along the cliffs above the Hudson River and I'm thinking to myself I'm one I wonder if this is high enough that if I jump I'll die and again I'm not going to but I hear myself thinking it and I realize I can't stop thinking that it's out of control and I don't know how to catch my own thoughts if that makes sense and I sit on this bench because Weehawk and those cliffs are right over the Hudson it's the most beautiful view of the city you'll ever see I actually like will say like I think it's one of the best kept secrets in the New York area they have these little buses from Port Authority couple bucks you run out there cheap date beautiful view you blow somebody's mind with it do it don't tell them you heard about it in a suicide related story <laughs> But just like go out there, it's beautiful. And I was sitting on this bench and I was crying for a long time, just kind of heaving, crying. And, and part of why I know it's a great date spot is because these two couples walked by and they were clearly on a double date. They were two Hispanic couples. They were really beautiful people. They were all good looking and it was very much clearly a double date. And they were joking and laughing and they were walking right by me. And then I was sitting on a bench and one of the couples sat here. And the other couple sat here and they were talking and joking and laughing and no one acknowledged the crying 32 year old white guy on the middle of the bench. 
it made no sense. And I was like looking at them and like crying and they were just, they just were looking at each other. No one made eye contact with me. And in my head I went, I get what's going on. I'm dead. I'm a ghost. They can't see me. That's what happens to me. I'm the ghost of Weehawken. My destiny is I haunt Weehawken forever. Like, it could be worse. Like, it could be Union City or North Bergen. Like, there's worse towns in Hudson County. Like, this is okay, you know? And I got up and I just started wandering around Weehawken, crying, convinced I was a ghost and no one could see me. And at one point, I just threw open the doors to this steakhouse, like this fancy steakhouse up on the cliffs, and I just walked in and cried. I started just walking up to tables and looking and seeing what people were eating. And in my head, I wasn't saying any of this. I was thinking it, like walking up to a table and being like, you're eating a burger at a steakhouse? Like, grow up, grow up. Oh, scallops, nice scallops. Steakhouse choice, good. But I'm not actually saying any of that. So all the people in this restaurant just see a crying man going, (laughs) just wandering around. And then I just left. I just left. And at one point, these cliffs, they have all these like um, inclines, like these things you can walk up. And I found myself at the bottom of one and I was walking up and things were getting really bad. And really, I mean, as you can tell, but really out of control. And I'm walking up this incline and I stop because there's graffiti stenciled on this concrete pathway. And it says, what are you doing here? And I'm looking at it and I'm like, that's completely bizarre. And I walk up a little further and there's another one stenciled. And it says, maybe things can change. And I was like, well, this is really crazy. And I felt myself calming down and I walked up a little further and there was another one that said, tomorrow could be different. And in my head, I'm like, this is beautiful, what a beautiful moment. Like some artist put this here and he or she didn't know if anyone was gonna find it. Not only did someone find it before it got removed, I found it when I'm like this. Like, like that's what art is for. You send a message out in the world, you hope somebody receives it and I received it and I was feeling such like euphoria and I, I got to the top of the hill, I was almost running to see if there were more and there was one more and it said www.godaddy.com. <laughs> And I was like, of course, of course GoDaddy is the type of company doing shitty hipster advertising in Weehawken, of course. And all the euphoria just left. I felt more betrayed than ever by life, by the life around me. And I, I, I kept walking around for a while and I wound up back at my crying bench, uh, which at this point I had spent enough time on it crying that it was certifiably my crying bench. And I sat there crying for a long time and I didn't know what to do. Eventually I took out my phone and real late on a Sunday night I called my shrink. And she picked up and she was like, you never call me off hours, what's going on? I said, I think I'm a ghost and we hawk in and I was gonna get whiskey and my elbows are broken and I'm ugly and, and, and I'm losing it and I can't really calm down, I don't know what's going on. She said, okay, okay, okay. She goes, look, uh, I got a couple questions for you. She goes, first, before I even get into that, she goes, I'll tell you right now, you don't sound crazy. And that meant a lot to me. Because I don't, you know, it's scary. It's scary to realize you're going crazy. So for someone who knows me to say that, it meant a lot. And she goes, let me ask you this, like, compared to a couple hours ago, you think you're headed in the right direction or the wrong direction? And I sat and I thought about it. I said, you know, I feel awful. I feel really awful and I'm really scared, but I got to say, I feel a little less scared than an hour ago if I'm thinking objectively. And she goes, well, that's a good sign, right? And I go, yeah. And she goes, well, 
it's a good sign that you called me, isn't it? And I said, it is. It is. And she paused, and then she goes, honestly, we'll talk about it on Thursday. And she said that, and uh, those were the six words that I think kept me alive. We'll talk about it on Thursday. Because it hit me. It's late on a Sunday. It's pretty much Monday. I can, I can stay alive till Thursday. I can do that. When you put it like that, that's simple enough. I can do that. And my guess is that that's not the way a doctor should be. If, if a client calls you in the middle of the night and is like, I'm a ghost and I want to jump off cliffs, you shouldn't be like, cool, Thursday it is. I imagine that that's not the correct thing to do. But that's what she said, and it worked for me. And, and I have talked openly about the fact that I suffer from this stuff on stage sometimes, and it's always in the service of comedy. I, I turn stories into jokes, that's what I do. And I wound up writing a little bit about it online as well, and it kind of went viral. I sort of unintentionally became like a, an advocate for mental health awareness, which I did not expect, but I don't mind because people say it helps and I'm happy to help, but people ask me for advice. And sometimes people will be like, I suffer and I'm depressed and scared. I don't know what to do. What do I do? And I always say, I don't know. I am not a professional. And it's not even like I can pass on advice from my shrink because she's not really a professional either. <laughs> like if I was gonna tell you something she told me in good conscience, I'd have to be like, you know, my buddy once told me this thing. <laughs> Like, that's as far as I could take it. But what I can say to those people is you have your Thursday. You have your thing that's not unattainable. For me, that was actually Thursday. Maybe that's what it is for you, but maybe your version of Thursday is the person you feel comfortable opening up to or a place where you know you feel safe. But it's out there, and it's not that far away because I found mine, and I'm not very strong. So I bet you can do it too. But I can give some advice to the people who are on the other side of the fence, which I get a lot of people going, my mom, my roommate, my friend is suffering, and I don't know how to deal with it. How can I help them? And for that, I can give you some advice that I learned by an example that was set, which was, you can be like my old shrinks who used to do everything by the book, who worried about making sure everything they did was correct. Or you can be like my new shrink, who doesn't worry at all about what's correct, but really worries about doing what's right. Who really is willing to pick up the phone even if she's probably not supposed to. And she did that for me. And it's part of why I love her, and it's part of why I'll always love her. Even though she once told me, in the 70s, she starred in a series of pornographic films. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. And I found you with a bottle of wine Having the good I like the 4th of July You swore and said we are not We are not shining star This I know I never said we are Though I've never been through hell like that I've closed enough windows to know you can never look back 
If you're lost in your home, or you're sinking like a stone, carry on. May your past be sound, or your feet upon the ground, and carry on. Carry on. This is Risk. This is fun behind me now, and we just heard from Chris Gethard. We have one last story on this best of Risk number eight, and it comes to us from one of our favorites, Allison Moon. Her latest two books are Girl Sex 101 and Bad Dyke, Salacious Stories from a Queer Life. Here's Allison now with a story we call Four Orgies and a funeral. bit of a misanthrope, a friendly misanthrope, uh, but I just don't think that the average person is much more interesting than a really good sandwich. Uh, and 15 years ago, I met somebody who actually made me reevaluate my stance and maybe consider being a better person. Hans glowed. He was one of those guys that just kind of had a a love for life that just gave him an incandescence that created light, that created heat. I met him when I was in college. He was two years older than me and six inches shorter. And he uh, glowed because of paleness at first. (laughs) He was like translucent. Um, I don't remember much of our first meeting, but I do remember that he asked me a lot of questions, like really big, deep questions of me, like, what do you want to create in this world, and what turns you on spiritually, and who really are you at the end of the day? Questions that, as a 17-year-old, I did not have the qualifications to answer. Uh, But once he saw that, he moved on to more neutral topics, but he always asked me a lot of questions. Uh, His favorite question, I learned, was, would you like to have sex with me? Uh, I had gotten that question many times before, uh, but I had never gotten it from a man while sober, while dressed, in the broad daylight. And so when I said, for the first time, no thanks, and he said, Cool, you want to go climb my favorite tree? I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. I didn't know that they made men like that. Men that didn't attach ego and expectations to that question, which sounds simple, but is actually incredibly fraught. So I learned to like him tentatively because he loved so openly and I was so caged. But there was something there that I knew that I I needed to love about him. And every once in a while he would say... He would just kind of check in, just in case something had changed, you know. And uh, I would usually say no, nothing had changed until something kind of did. 
June 19th, 2003. I remember this date very clearly because I had just graduated from college and I was staying in town saving money and trying to figure out what the hell to do with my life. And I walked into the town square and I saw Hans there flanked by many well-dressed African-American people and I, he said, Happy Juneteenth, Allison! And I said, What's Juneteenth? And then I proceeded to get an education in African-American Emancipation Day from the whitest person I've ever known. And he said, what are you going to do with the rest of your life now that you're done? And I said, I don't know. And he said, what are you going to do today? And I said, I have no idea. And he says, would you like to have sex? (laughs) And I say, no, thanks. And he says, would you like to go swimming? And I say, fuck yes, because I always want to go swimming. And so he says, have you been to Chance Creek? This is the swimming hole outside of campus. And in the four years I've been on campus, I have not gone. And so he says, well, we're going. And so we get in the car and we start driving out. And he says on the road, Allison, when did you discover that you were bisexual? I said, I don't, I don't know if I ever discovered it. I mean, it was kind of like an amalgam of dreams and crushes and attractions that kind of added up to me. And it wasn't really discovering me as something different. It was discovering that the world was smaller than my sexuality was, I guess. And he said, when you had sex with a woman for the first time, was it revelatory? And I said, no, no, actually, not at all. It was just scary. And when I'm honest with myself, which isn't very often, but when I am... It was actually kind of gross. Like, genitals aren't my favorite part of sex. It's the skin on skin that I really love. And he says, Allison, I want to hold your hand. Will you hold my hand? And so he holds his hand on the armrest of the car, and I, I put my hand inside of it. And we just drive in silence on these hot back roads of Ohio for a little while. And then he says, I want to share something embarrassing with you. Can I do that? And I say, yeah, of course. And so he says, when I graduated high school, um, we had a bonfire, and a bunch of the guys, we went into the cornfields, and we practiced giving each other blowjobs. And like me, as like a nascent sex educator, was prepared to be like, that's totally normal. <laughs> but he kept on going, and he said, and like I, like, I really wanted to like it. You know, like... I like closed my eyes and when I thought of things, like I really liked it. And then when I opened my eyes, it's like I just, there was a guy there and I just couldn't, I couldn't go there. And I'm really sad about that. And I'm really sad that you get to have all of these flavors and I, I just can't go there. Because that's the kind of guy he was. He was envious of me for being able to love widely. As much as I was envious of him for being able to love deeply. And so we got to the creek and we met some friends and there was two other girls and we'd all worn swimsuits and Hans was just like, fuck this noise. And he just ran to the water, stripped his clothes naked, just jumped into the water and the girls and we were like, okay, yeah, it's going to happen. So we just stripped naked and we dove into the water and it became one of those perfect summer days, you know? 
swimming and long, languid conversations about whatever was on our minds, and we laid on rocks like turtles sunbathing, and Hans found this really cool area of mud, and he just started slathering it on, this dark brown mud all over his bright white body, covering himself. And so the girls, we all just started covering ourselves in mud. And I actually had a camera, and so I put it on a rock when this was auto time, and I pressed the auto time, and I ran back, and we took these pictures of ourselves. I have three pictures from that day, and my favorite one is Hans. He's, like, trying to adjust his position, and he starts taking a knee, and then his arms go out because he's, like, losing his balance. He just goes, ah! <laughs> Just naked, covered in mud, looking like he's about to take fucking flight. <laughs> that was the last time I saw him for seven years. And uh, the next time I saw him, I, was, I needed a favor. I was moving from Los Angeles to San Francisco, and I had a bunch of stuff I needed to store in a basement. So he's like, don't worry, I got you covered. And uh, things fell through. I was on the five, and he says, he calls me. He's like, just meet me here. I've got you covered. So I pull in to Oakland in the storage facility the next morning with my partner in this rental truck. And Hans runs up to me, smiles, hugs me, and says, here's the lock. Don't worry about it. It's all taken care of. You're good. Welcome to your new home. And... Uh, that's the kind of guy that, that he was. And I wasn't quite sure what to do with this. I'm still never quite sure what to do with that kind of openness, you know? Uh, so my partner, Reed, and I eventually found this beautiful loft, but it needed a lot of work. And Hans had built a bunch of houses for Habitat for Humanity and was a carpenter by trade. And so he would just show up with tools, helping me do shit around the house, uh, Reed was gone for uh, most of the summer that we were building the space, and so Hans would just show up with this toolkit. He came up with these, these nails that have, like, explosive, like, you know, like gunpowder in the tip, where they're, they're used to, like, you hit them, they drive into concrete. So he taught me how to build walls and hang doors and hang windows and drive these crazy combustible nails into concrete because he wanted to build houses as strong as his friendships, you know? So we had a big housewarming party, and Reed and I, we throw parties that turn into orgies or orgies that turn into parties. We just throw parties where a lot of people get sexy. And so the first party that we threw, I don't remember if it started out as an orgy or ended up as an orgy, it doesn't matter. But I do remember that Hans was the first person naked in the pile in the middle. <laughs> and I thought, this is going to be a good place for us to live for a little while. So we had a lot of these parties, and Hans became a regular fixture. And every once in a while, he'd be like, Allison do you want to have sex? And I'm like, no, I'm cool. Thanks. No, thanks. But I would always throw him to my, my lady friends who came by because I knew he was so good. He was such that kind of guy that you wanted to like throw your ladies to because he would make the laughs happen and the moans happen and the giggles and the moans happen at the same time. That's the kind of quality guy you want at your orgies, right? <laughs> and we had also, because we were both, my partner and I were both sex educators, we had inherited a bunch of like sex furniture. So we had like a, sec a bondage table and a bondage chair and a sex swing and a sex machine. This like pneumatic thing. It was like... It was like a dildo on the end of this pneumatic arm over this leather bench. Just relentless, right? Amazing. Um, and the sex swing was Hans's favorite. I would often look up from a pile of bodies and see him perched there with a beatific smile on his face, looking over at the writhing sexiness happening in front of him. Sometimes he would be alone, often he was not. Uh, 
So we had a bunch of these parties, and then about a year into us moving into like our anniversary in this loft, um, we had had an- we had another party, and it was like I was cranky that night. It was a small party, and he's like, "Allison, do you want to have sex or just play or something?" And I said, "No, thanks." At this point, it was out of habit and maybe a little bit of social anxiety as opposed to out of actual thought and desire. Because in retrospect, and I often think about this, when he asks, you know, do you want to play? The answer is actually yes, but I didn't say yes. I just said no thanks, like I always said to, to him. And... He said, okay. And I foisted him on one of my friends, and I watched and enjoyed as he giggled and romped with her all night, and it was really beautiful and fun. Uh, And then, not a week later, I got a phone call from another college friend who I'd seen in San Francisco a bunch of times, and, and he called, and I answered, and he says, Allison, and his voice just trails off. And, like, instinctively, like, I knew it was one of, you know, those phone calls, even though I'd never gotten one of those phone calls before. And he says, Hans. And he just chokes. And I lower myself to the corner of my bed. And he says, Hans. And he chokes on his own voice again. And I say, Hans what? And he just... Wretches the words. Hans is dead. And I, he gives me a little bit of the details. And I say, okay, thanks. And I hang up on him. And I'm holding my phone, and I'm, I'm looking at it, and I'm scrolling through the contacts. Because I'm supposed to call somebody now, right? That's what you're supposed to do. I'm supposed to phone tree or some shit. I'm scrolling through, and I see a bunch of names, and no one in my phone needs to know right then. But I pick a couple people, and I call them, just because I feel like I need to repeat the phrase like I'm learning a foreign language. Hans is dead. Hans is dead. Hans is dead. And then I I get up, and I I walk to Reed in his office, and I say, Hans is dead. And he looks at me, and he says, okay. Okay, like a question. Like, are you okay? Okay, what do I need to do for you? Okay, is everything okay? And I say, okay. Okay. And so I walk into the middle of the home that Hans helped me build, and I feel empty. And so I I, I get back to work. So I go outside to pull some plywood off the roof of my car, which I had ratcheted to it, because we still had work to do on the loft. And I call over my shoulder, Reed, can you help me? And then... uh, Reed finds me on the asphalt next to the car, heaving in sobs. 
And now the 15 minutes of shock has, is over, and I just feel ah, everything, everything, everything. And honestly, having experienced grief a couple times in my life, I have to expect that the prevalent emotion after hearing news of a loss is regret. Right? Regret for all the things you said, regret for all the things you didn't say, regret for the last thing you said to them before they left. All that bullshit just comes right there. Regret for all the moments that you have been denied. And all I could feel was regret, and the only word I ever heard in my head was no thanks. No thanks. No thanks to all the times Hans asked me if I wanted to be loved as much as he wanted to love me. And I said, no thanks. There was a funeral, of course. Uh, Hans was actually in seminary, which sounds kind of silly, except for he actually was like the kind of Christian that Christians say Christians are. Uh, he like saw God in everything and the divine in everyone. And so, of course, it seemed perfectly clear that he'd be wearing a collar around his neck while heading to the orgy. Um, so, so we went to the funeral, and it was all of the things that you think a funeral should be, and all the things that an atheist at a funeral feels is what, what I felt. And in the basement, in the reception, I had this picture of us covered in mud, naked, and I couldn't show it to anyone there because all of the friends that knew him the way I knew him, they weren't there. They didn't feel comfortable there. And in the weeks later, his spirit was not at rest with us. The Hans that I knew found God in sweat and cum and moans and screams, and I knew I needed to throw Hans a fucking orgy. So we threw Hans a fucking orgy. And in the house that Hans helped build, uh, we had friends that I haven't seen since college. His oldest lovers who lived in the Bay Area and I never saw. His, one of his great oldest lovers was there holding hands with her boyfriend with her arm wrapped around the woman who I will always consider to be his widow, sharing stories about how much passion could be packed into such a fucking small container. And as they shared their stories about why they needed to honor him this way, because it wasn't just me, it was a lot of us that needed to honor him in the way that we knew him best. I looked across the circle as we were sharing stories, and I saw my partner, who could have been Hans's cousin, but for like 100 pounds and like 8 inches of height. And I saw in him what I saw in Hans, this need to create community around sweat and lust and love and experience of catharsis in ways that are maybe outside of the norm. And I looked at him, and I was so grateful that I actually was able to say yes to him, more times than I was able to say no to Hans. And the orgy was amazing. I mean, it was amazing. There are people fucking like crazy. There were sobs that turned into orgasms. Orgasms turned into sobs because as sex geeks, we know often these things are inextricably linked and there's nothing wrong with that. And 
we played Scrabble. Um, we played Sex Scrabble. It's a team sport. Um, we played it in teams of two where when you were laying down the tiles, you had to be the one getting fucked while you were laying down the tiles. It created some really rudimentary, r- problematic words. And some real strategic quandaries, like why would you end a word in an E right before a triple word score? It doesn't matter. It didn't matter. And I, I, I was partnered with a woman who scared me, and I felt yes in the scaredness, in the way that I always felt no in the scaredness with Tom. And we had an uneven number of people in the game. So we actually decided we needed to have somebody so they could play with the seventh member, and so we hauled out the sex machine. So one of our teammates got to play while getting fucked by the machine. And late in the evening, after all of us were spent, and we lifted our glasses and our asses to the man who was dear departed, somebody said, you know that sex machine? We should name him Hans. And so we did. Hans now lives next to my favorite reading chair in the loft, usually very quiet, but I know that if he ever asks again, my answer is going to be yes. Thank you. Such a delicate flower To stimulate Needs serious horsepower I can't pretend It's a waste to be phony She needs a stag on speed And I am just a little pony She took me to A dungeon in the hills Didn't get me hard, no Instead, it gave me chills. I can't pretend I didn't notice how she loved the attention. She was willingly sodomized with a lawnmower engine. Come for me, will you, baby? Like a passionate movie scene. Come for me, will you, lady? But I am not the man who can give her what she needs Cause she only comes when she's fucked by a machine A machine named Hans That is all for this week's Risk, folks. This is Jefferson Berge behind me now, and we just heard from Allison Moon. Listen, if you enjoyed what you heard here today, please spread the word. Tell your friends. The best of Risk number eight is the perfect 
introduction to what we're all about. Another great introductory episode is The Best of Risk number four. I highly recommend it. Some people especially love the one-story episodes like Slave or Kevin Goes to Kink Camp or The Downward Spiral. Tell your friends they can easily download us for free on iTunes or from our website at risk-show.com. They can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. There's almost 180 episodes for free, and there's 62 that are, most of which are 99 cents each in our shop. You can find that at risk-show.com slash shop or just at the, uh, you know, albums section of iTunes. Those are the classics from our early years, and some very great stories to hear in those episodes as well. So nothing means more to us from our fans than that they recruit more fans. <laughs> Spread the word. Let people know that Risk is really something special. What else can you do? You can come see us live. You can find out about all our live shows at risk-show.com slash tour. You can find out about other workshops we teach at thestorystudio.org. And folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Come for me, will you, lady? Like a passionate movie scene. Come for me, will you, baby? But she yawns and rolls her eyes And what others find obscene She only comes when She's fucked by a machine Blew a fucking fuse She only comes when She's fucked by a machine. Four hands. Penises and buttholes, penises and buttholes, penises and buttholes.